And welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman, coming to you to discuss sports, society, and all kinds of other stuff. And this week, we have a special guest, because he was one of the guests on the one, the only, lost episode of the Hammer Time Podcast that we recorded um, a while ago. And so I'm going to have them both on separately, because they deserve their own episodes, and uh, basically what happened is that we were recording an episode and then it got cut off 25 minutes in, but this is better because now we can talk about more than just the one subject we were talking about in that larger episode. So I have with me social maven of Barstool Sports, Coley Mick. Coley, how are you doing? I'm, I'm great. I'm glad to be back. Um, even though this, to, to the listener, it's going to be the first time, but you know what? We, we go through, we persevere, we go on and, uh, yeah, even though this one's not only about cartoons, I think we're going to get there uh, later on, and I'm, I'm just happy to chop it up again. Yeah, we were going to talk about cartoons for an hour. Tonight, we're just going to talk about it for about 20 minutes, maybe a little bit less, and I think that'll be a lot better. But there's so much other stuff to talk about, because you're a Boston guy, I'm a Boston guy, as has been established. And to start off, why don't you talk about what made you fall in love with sports in the first place? Yeah, I mean, growing up in this city, it's it's pretty inescapable. I don't think I I know anyone really who I grew up with who wasn't into, if not one, all four of them. Um, I, I'm not a huge hockey guy, uh, which is kind of like an outcast sort of thing in Boston. It's a massive hockey city, but I just remember some of my earliest memories of my father taking me to the to the Fenway to the Garden. Um, to Patriots games later on. Um, those, those remain the hardest tickets to get. Everything else is pretty pretty accessible. But, um, yeah, I, I just have so many memories. Um, I got Ortiz at the plate on TV right now, and I, I just can't imagine doing anything else. And of course, I grew up playing everything. I mean, I, I feel like every kid around here uh, played Little League, played even soccer at first, and, and I was all summer long, and every day after school, you could find me at a basketball court. So it's really, it's hard to disconnect myself from, from sports. And last time we talked, it was pre-Summer League, and I remember that you went on uh, a 10 to 15 minute conversation just defending the Celtics' number three overall pick, Jalen Brown. Now we have a little bit more information to go off of, so... Have your thoughts about Jalen Brown changed at all since Summer League? Yeah, I mean, I, I was incredibly pro-Jalen before the draft, after the draft, and Summer League only made me look like an absolute genius because he was one of the best players out there for any team. I Ben Simmons was great, but I, I 
would dare any non-Sixers fan to tell me they watched all those games and tell me Jalen didn't outperform him. Now, granted, it's Summer League. It means absolutely nothing. But to see Jalen out there on an NBA court with that kind of spacing that you don't have in college, uh, he looked like an, an absolute stud. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing what he does during his rookie season. Who do you think he plays like? Because right now the working comparison that I have is I think he's an Andre Iguodala, just a little bit bigger. Um, I I, I do kind of like the Iguodala comparison because I mean Iguodala had one of the more broken jump shots um, coming into the league recently. That I think Iguodala was a little bit more explosive as an athlete, and I mean that's. That's no knock on Jalen. He's a tremendous athlete in his own right. But, I mean, Iguodala put up one of the greatest dunk contest performances I've ever seen. And he would have won it if the judges didn't just hand it to Nate Robinson for absolutely no reason other than the fact that he's 5'4". Both tremendous defenders. And and the reason I really do like that comparison is because in the open court on the fast break, they're tremendous distributors. Iguodala, obviously more advanced right now. Um, and maybe even a little bit more so coming into the league, but you could see it in the summer league. Uh, Jalen was making tremendous decisions. I think right now he's probably our best, the Celtics' best open court distributor. Um, for so when he's out there, I think that's where he's going to make his bread and butter as a rookie. Is, is getting rebounds and getting uh, transition buckets for other people, not even necessarily himself. And we also have to talk about. One of the nicer revelations of the Summer League, I think, the Celtics' second first-round pick, uh, Yabu, Gershon Yabusele. What were your thoughts of him when you watched him play? I mean, Gershon's just absolutely electric. He, he like, the only things Fran Fischella had to say about him was, was that he was an energy guy and, and Draymond Green-like. I think the Draymond comparisons... For the next few years, are going to be for pretty much any single player that comes out and doesn't have one specific skill. Um, but Gershon, I mean, his first game was kind of a disaster, and then they told him to calm down, and he calmed down and he played much better. Uh, I was, I think we we're all holding out hope he was going to make the team, uh, but I think it's the right idea. We're a little congested right now. Let him go over in China. If we have an injury, by the time March rolls around, there's a spot on him uh, for him on the roster. Bring him on over or just let him come out um, next year. And he's still young. Uh, he's, he's a burly boy. He, he can shoot. And he really does just, just – he's like a vacuum. Any, any rebound he wants, he seems to go, go get. Uh, his highlights, when we took him, he was blocking a lot more shots. I think that was more because he was playing in kind of a, a medium-level French league. So I don't know if we're going to see a lot of that here, but I do – I, I mean, I, he's, he's electric. There's nothing nothing you can't like about the guy. What do you think overall about the Celtics team this year? Because it, it, this offseason was a little bit strange. There were some opportunities to potentially, you know, get Kevin Durant. Russell Westbrook was bandied about a little bit, even to the point in some where people were like, he's going to be on the Celtics, which was always a little bit over the top, but now it's definitely not going to happen. Where do you think this team stands, and what do you think their goal should be next season? Their goal should be to get to the Eastern Conference Finals and to to try and punch the Cavs in the mouth. I don't uh, anyone who's saying right now like, "Oh, the Celtics can beat the Cavs." No, no, they can't. Like that team has LeBron James. We don't have LeBron James. I think the biggest thing is going to be trying to establish 
they're not established, but continue the identity they built last year. I mean, last year was the first time since Brad Stevens got here that he wasn't facing constant roster turnover, not even just before the season, but throughout the season. I mean, I think it was something like 27 technical moves Danny Ainge made those first two years. Um, Brad Stevens, a lot of people were pining for some mega deal at, at the trade deadline, which, by the way, has worked once throughout the history of the NBA for Sheed Wallace. That has never worked for any team ever. So <laughs> this February, I'm already angry at the people who are mad Danny Ainge isn't going to go out and make some, some mega move right before the deadline. That's not what you need to do. But anyways, for this season, they should – like last year, I, I thought they had enough to go out and be the uh, 50-win three seed. They were right there in that mix. I think four teams tied with 48 game, uh, 48 wins, and it was just kind of muddled. We ended up at the five. So, I mean, we made the Hawks worse. A lot of people, uh, a lot of writers still high on the Hawks. I don't see it. Right now, I if, if we stay healthy, which is always the big caveat with any team, if we're healthy, what Al Horford brings to this team just this year, I don't see why they can't be the second-best team in the East and Hopefully, I mean, they should be trying to win a playoff series. Last year, it should have happened. Avery Bradley got hurt. Jay Crowder got banged up. Isaiah Thomas lost his job. So there were a lot of things that went wrong for them at the wrong time. So they really need to go into the playoffs this year with Avery healthy, with Kelly Olynyk even healthy, with Jay Crowder healthy. And they get out there. They got Horford right now. They've got a pretty strong, solid uh, starting five. I think Evan Turner's loss, hopefully that can be uh, fixed by using Terry Rozier and Jalen Brown as sort of trying to fill that void that surprisingly Evan Turner left on this team. Um, and, but but Jared Selinger's not here, so we're going to be better just off that. It's like when we lost Jeff Green and immediately <laughs> got better. We lost Jared Selinger. That's a huge that's a huge plus no matter which way you slice it. And it weakens a division rival because he now plays for the Raptors. <laughs> yeah, because Jared Selinger was kind of useless. Uh, Terry Rozier is someone interesting because in Summer League, he looked good. And if he really steps up, I think he could be a, a key player. It was even before Summer League because he was kind of, like he didn't play much in the regular season last year, but he was kind of thrust into playing time during the playoffs due to, due to all the injuries and Isaiah Thomas's in uh, inability to dribble. Um, and he was, he was surprisingly, like, I'm not saying he was like a uh, uh, rookie or a second-year Rondo or anything like that, but he was surprisingly competent for someone who was, was more or less stable to the bench throughout the year. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what happens with him. Uh, when when we drafted him, uh, Danny Ainge had nothing but glowing reviews to say about his athleticism, and, and it seems like the game, the game, like a lot of rookies, they always say the game's so much faster than they expected it to be, moving from college to the NBA, and and Rogier last year was very hesitant to, to be decisive about his, his moves. Again, granted it was summer league, but he looked like a much different player. He was operating in space a lot better. He was dominating in pick and roll offensively and defensively. Uh, so, yeah, I'm very, very intrigued to see what he does against real-life uh, NBA competition. I also think that one thing with Rozier that people may have forgotten, he was really good in college. And he right. was... If you watch some of those highlights with Louisville, he stands out and he definitely throws to the occasion. So, I mean, the Warriors are pretty much the favorites. Talk about the Cavs and the Celtics. Is there one team this year that you really like what they did with their offseason and you think that they could maybe make some waves? Um, the, there's no one who particularly stands out, so I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about the Timberwolves because they are coming. 
I, I'm as, as this this offseason, they didn't do anything that deterred me from thinking they're coming. I'm glad they didn't trade for Jimmy Butler. I'm glad the Celtics didn't trade for Jimmy Butler. I don't know why everyone's so obsessed with Jimmy Butler. Uh, he's a solid player. He's no doubt about that. Don't know why everyone thinks you can trade for him. You're an instant contender that he didn't even make the playoffs last year. He played 67 games in a week East. Now the East is stronger. The Bulls got more confusing. So I don't know. I don't understand it all. But the Wolves, Carl Anthony Town right now, I think is 50 to 1 MVP odds. If they, like, I think they're going to be the eight seed. I wouldn't be surprised if they were the seven seed. If they sneak up into that, like, five seed, it's going to be because Carl Anthony Towns took an even bigger step than I can even fathom. Um, he's coming to collect multiple rings and multiple MVPs very soon. I wasn't high on Chris Dunn coming to the Celtics because he would have had to come in day one, be one of our best players, start at point guard. It would have caused a whole myriad of problems that I don't think he was good enough to justify. With the Timberwolves, he gets to be, like, the fourth best player on the court. Because they have Towns, Wiggins, uh, Zach Levine, and, and they're talking about playing him next to Rubio. I don't think that's going to work at all, but they've talked about it. Uh, so he might be the fifth best player on the court at points. I think that's the exact perfect place where he needs to be. I think Tibbs is just going to crank up his defense to even more so than what it was at Providence. Uh, I really like, and with KG there, over kind of like as an assistant coach overseeing everything, I, I'm very interested and, and can't wait to watch 82 Timberwolves games this year. Yeah, they're going to be the NBA League Pass team, I'm pretty sure. That that team is going to be really sick. I want to jump to baseball super quick. Uh, talk all about football on the show, but not a lot about baseball. And you are a Red Sox fan, so what do you think right now about how the Red Sox are playing? Because it's a little bit up and down. I mean, we go April, May, June, and July, and the pitching is just garbage. And then August hits, and even the end of July, and the pitching figures itself out. And then they're still league-leading offense. They're number one in every major category still right now. Their bats just go the fuck to sleep, and it's it's so frustrating because, like, we should be still in first right. Like, every time I check the standings, I expect to be ten games back because of how terrible the product I am I'm watching is. And then I look, and it's like, oh, we're only three games back. Like, this team should be in first, but they can't sync up when, when the pitching's great. The hitting takes a, a day off. When the, the pitching uh, stinks and they give up six runs, they lose 6-5. It's just infuriating to watch. Um, I, I, I wasn't in on – I didn't think this was a World Series team before the season. Then you get through May, and they're beating the bag out of everyone. They're hanging nine runs on, on teams, like, every other night. Um it's just real frustrating. I'm upset. Uh, I'm very upset. We traded Anderson Espinosa for Drew Palmer, and like, yeah, he's he's a decent pitcher. Like, we could have got him in the off season for not the best pitching prospect we've we've ever had. I think, I do think that was something we could have done. But uh, my biggest fear when uh, Dombrowski was brought here, like, this is a guy who likes to take top prospects and, and trade them. He did it in Detroit. He's done it pretty much everywhere he's gone. It's his mo. And uh, he's traded a lot of them to get Craig Kimbrell, uh, who's been pretty good. He's, he hasn't been lights out like you would expect to see, but he's been – I can't really complain about him in the grand scheme of things. But, man, I'm, I'm pretty upset about that, like, Pomeranz trade. Like, this guy, he comes out, he pitches like a little leaguer. I don't understand his, his wind-up, and then he throws 90% curveballs. Like, I don't think that's a, a recipe for success – 
when you're in the AL East, when you're playing for the Padres, sure, I'm sure that works out just fine. But this is this is Boston. This isn't San Diego. The thing with Pomerantz that jumps out to me though is it seems like that the market for pitching was really crazy this year. There are some pretty intense valuations placed on mediocre pitchers, and I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't have made the trade either, but they were not going to get anywhere with the pitching staff they had. Like, it would, it just wasn't working. And David Price has been a little bit unlucky this year, but that was another signing where I think you could see from the get-go. I mean, this is a guy who was get, getting on the older side a little bit, and... You know, I don't know if they should have paid him as much money as they ended up paying him. I think he's still a number one pitcher, but, I mean, he hasn't been that impressive this year, and that's been a little bit disappointing to me. But you're right. I mean, pitching isn't going to get any better. The hitting, you know, you got Benintendi up there now, Andrew Yastrzemski, um, and I think he's going to end up being a really good player. And then Mookie Betts and, and Xander Bogarts have just been absolutely outstanding. David Ortiz has been absolutely outstanding. I think that no one wants to face a team in the playoffs, to be honest. I mean, if you have a, a wild card game against the Red Sox, like one game, and you're going to have to face David Ortiz in that game, you're, I think you're feeling a little bit scared. But at the same time, I agree with you. I'm not sure there's a World Series team this year. I think next year, though, if they don't make a major jump, it'll be very disappointing, at least to me, because they have so much young talent. It's crazy. Well, yeah, yeah. The main reason, like going back to how you were saying that the trade market's messed up, it got messed up because of the Arizona Diamondbacks trading their entire farm system for Shelby Miller. If you go back and look at Shelby Miller's numbers from last year, they were pretty much identical to Wade Miley's. So they gave up their whole farm system for a guy they traded the year prior. The Arizona Diamondbacks are trying to be what I would consider the worst-run organization in all of professional sports. And there's some stinkers out there, so that's saying a lot. Tony La Russa doesn't have his pals hacking away committing felonies anymore like he did in St. Louis, and he's screwing it up. Um, he, screwed, he screwed up the entire league. The reason why I'm very upset about the Espinosa trade is because I think it was made a week too early. What the White Sox were asking for, for Quintana and Chris Sale, I'm not the biggest fan of either of those guys, I would have preferred either of them to uh, uh, Drew Pomeranz, though, and I think we actually could have made a deal if we had used Espinosa in that deal. Sure, we would have had to have lost Benintendi as well, but when you look at what Yohan Mankata uh, can do, he doesn't play defense like an infielder. It's, it's, it's his one flaw, so right now, the way we look at it, do we have four outfielders, or where's Mankata going to play? Are we going to just suck up with his defense next year because this we're talking about one of the more elite offensive prospects at any level in baseball and it's a guy I really want to see play here so that that's the one thing that concerns me uh, and that's also why like even if we didn't go out and get a pitcher just call up Moncada and Benatendi and then I think we should have went out well I like yeah pitching stinks there's no doubt about that however Rick Porcello has been the complete opposite of what he was last year. He's been a pleasant surprise. You go Price out there, yeah, he had a career of stinking in the playoffs, shit. It's, you can say small sample size, whatever. There's still a chance he can only give up four runs in a game. So I thought, go out there, strengthen your strength. Don't try and make a mediocre staff, like, slightly more mediocre. Like, Drew Pomerantz, no, 
You go out there with Drew Pomeranz in a playoff game, I don't care if it's a wild card game, I don't care if it's uh, game seven of the ALCS, no one's like, oh shit, we have to face Drew Pomeranz tonight. No one in the world. So you go out there, you get Lucroy to catch. I know Sandy Leone's hitting like 450 and, and 100 at-bats, but Lucroy has a history of, of being very good for the past three years. And what it costs Texas, who has a similarly deep farm system to us in terms of guys like Jerickson Profire and Joey Gallo, they didn't have to give up any of those guys to go get him. Even what Cleveland tried to pay, it wasn't Clint Frazier or any of those guys. Like the, the, the Milwaukee Brewers weren't asking for a lot for a very dominant offensive catcher who we only would have had to pay for one more year. We could have platooned him with Christian Vasquez, something like that. Maybe it only costs uh, Blake Swihide. So I think they went out and they tried to strengthen something that's still weak today as opposed to strengthen your strength, which you could have just done by calling up your own guys and making a trade for a catcher who was relatively cheap compared to the rest of the market. And then, of course, the Indians traded away Clint Frazier. That trade was awful. That trade with the Yankees. I, yeah, I, I mean, you get... Oh, no, I'm just saying, I can't believe how the Yankees pretty much revamped their entire farm system with two trades. Yeah, no, you got to give Cashman credit. I mean, uh, I asked a lot of Yankees fans, I was like, how does the fan base feel about that? And they were all like, we're pumped, because now, I mean, Teixeira is going to be gone, A-Rod's gone, like, at the end of the week. Um, and they have this, I mean, prospects can go either way, but they have nine guys in the top 100 on most lists. Um, if half those guys hit, you know, that's that's half a lineup right there. That's that's not a terrible place to be. Um, I think I think what Theo's done with the Cubs and what he, even though they haven't won yet, I think a lot more fan bases are like, Okay, we, we can we can actually build here, we'll wait two years as opposed to bring in these aging stars and then like Jaco- like no one wants Jacoby Elsberry right now, you couldn't trade him for anything. But they're stuck with him unless he retires next. Who knows? Prince Fielder retired today, too, and left and right. Uh, um, I think what the Cubs have done, and, and they, they still have the, the ability to go out and sign guys like they've shown with John Lester, I think more fan bases are more inclined to wait now. I think even Red Sox fans are becoming more patient, even though two years ago they were like, oh, yeah, let's just trade Xander Bogats. Now they see this guy, they're like, oh, I'm glad we didn't trade this guy for Matt Harvey, who doesn't even know how to piss correctly. So I think fan bases are becoming a little bit smarter in baseball when it, when it comes to building through the farm system, and, and Cashman saw his opportunity, and he, and he struck hard. i got to give him credit. To end off the sports portion, it is Olympic season now, and I personally love the Olympics. I swam growing up, so I like swimming, and I also like, of course, okay. a lot of the other track sports and basketball and baseball and whatnot and, and soccer. I mean, it's just fun to watch. Like, I don't know. It's just cool to, like, see what's going on. Um, what are your favorite sports to watch during the Olympics, and what do you think so far of the Olympic Games? Okay. Um, yeah, so Lily King uh, and dominating that Russian swimmer has been tremendous theater. Uh, that South African uh, shadow boxing in front of Michael Phelps, and then uh, Phelps just getting angry last night was great. So it, it's like two weeks every four years where, like, xenophobia becomes okay out of nowhere and like 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 two weeks ago everyone's like oh man i hate america we got all these problems donald trump's gonna be president and then as soon as the olympics start it's like america fuck yeah we're better than everyone and that's that's specifically why i love watching basketball because outside of like once since we let nba players play 
we just dominate everyone. And, and France has gotten worse. Spain's gotten worse. It's great to watch. And we're not even sending over our A team. Like, we have Kevin Durant, Demagos Cousins, and then it's like a bunch of B-squad players. And we still go out there and win by 45. Harrison Barnes is there. That should tell you about how much they care about the Olympics. Because Harrison Barnes, we'll see how he does this year, actually. I'm excited to see him in, in Dallas. So I think it could be good, but we'll see. I, I was a big Addison Bonds defender up until these finals because he used to come alive in the playoffs after coasting throughout the regular season and then these playoffs. I mean, he's escaping a lot of criticism because, well, he's still getting criticized, but I still think he should be getting blamed more for just absolutely not showing up at all. Yeah, it was pretty bad. All right, we're going to move on to the society portion of this podcast. We have a few things we want to hit on tonight. Um... And I think we're going to go back to baseball to start because, you know, we just had the Baseball Hall of Fame ceremony happen, and I this is something that I know you're passionate about and I'm definitely passionate about it as well. What do you think about baseball writers, guys, keeping Bonds and A-Rod out of the hall? It, like, there's, like, there's nothing worse about sports than old white baseball writers like, I'm still not over Pedro not winning the MVP in 1999, and that was done specifically because of old white baseball writers saying pitchers don't deserve to win. Then 15 years later, they turn around and give it to Justin Verlander. Like, wh- what are you talking about? Justin Verlander is an eighth of the pitcher of Pedro Martinez. Like, get that out of my face. So they do this every year. They get to feel like they're important. They feel like they're these gatekeepers. And they keep these guys who, like, baseball writers are just as implicit in the entire steroid era as anyone. It's like blaming the chicken and beer Red Sox only on the Red Sox. Like, no, you idiots were in the clubhouse, too. You could have stopped this in the middle of the season if one of you weren't too afraid to write a single article. But you're too afraid you won't get that book deal in 20 years. Like, what are you people doing? Like, Alex Rodriguez, I don't even like the guy. Barry Bonds, like, he pissed everyone off. No one likes him. These guys, you cannot tell the story of Major League Baseball without these guys. That's how important they were. Roger Clemens, one of the biggest dickheads of all time. You cannot tell the history of Major League Baseball without him in there. That's all the Hall of Fame is. If you want to make it something else, call it something else. These guys deserve to be in. You <laughs> you guys allowed steroids all this Allow them into the Hall of Fame, too. You want to put asterisks there? Fine, I don't really care. But you can't not you can't have a Hall of Fame and not have these guys in there. It just doesn't make any sense. And part of it also, two things. One is that cheating's happened in every era. This isn't just a steroids thing. We had amphetamines, we had greenies. Uh, there was like the mound elevation stuff, the dead ball era. There's always been little intricacies, and it's part of the story of baseball that it's been an ever evolving sport. And actually, I think it makes it pretty interesting. Uh, and it, as you said, I think it's part of the story. And to leave guys like Bonds and A-Rod out, I, I just don't understand. And the weird thing is, and I'm sort of thinking, I'm like the other side of the coin, you think about football and Peter King specifically. And Peter King seems like a wonderful person. I haven't met him before. He seems like a nice guy. But there are certain things about Peter King that are, are definitely... They're very antithetical to what you would think about baseball. Like, for example, I don't know if you remember this, but remember when Darren Sharper got indicted for, like, going from city to city and basically, like, being a serial rapist? Oh, yeah. No, you don't have 
The sugar company. He, he is a serial rapist. Yeah. yeah. So he's a serial rapist. <laughs> and Peter King on Twitter decided that the hill that he was going to die on is that he would vote for Darren Sharper to be in the Hall of Fame. Which, even though his off-field was not perfect, to say the least, even though he was a serial rapist, he would still vote for him based simply on the merit of what he did on the field. It, that is so weird to me. Like, the football-baseball difference is so weird. And yet, in both cases, I mean, it's old white men who are making the choices. It's just, like, this really weird dichotomy to me. I don't know. And then, it like, and then you just, like, Brett Five for all intents and purposes, is just, like, a drug addict. Like, I, which I'm cool with. I, I wish more guys were like that. But, like, no one seems to care. Like, he was talking about his wife during his, his uh, Hall of Fame speech, which, like, seemed very weird to me because of, like, the whole dick picking incident. Like, I'm guessing, like, I'm going to go out on a limb. That wasn't the first time Brett Favre was, like, cheating on his wife. No one seems to care. Like, <laughs> Dante Stallworth literally killed a man with his vehicle and got 30 days in prison was out of there. Seems to be a good guy outside of that one incident. So, yeah, the whole, I, I just don't understand, like, <laughs> I don't understand, like, the mix of morality and sports. Like, yeah, if you want to hate, um, Greg Hardy, like I do, like go right ahead. You like it, that? I have no problem with that. But like when you start getting to like steroids and stuff that like has nothing to do with like being a shitty human being, like I, it's, I like I'm not in eighth grade anymore. I don't care. Yeah, my personal opinion on steroids, I I don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, like it, like I'll put it this way, and I'll ask you this question too. What made you love baseball? Uh, oddly enough, I mean, I have old old cards from my Little League uh, era when uh, they used to ask your favorite player, and mine used to say Roger Clemens, and then he left, and then it was Pedro Martinez. So it, it was those two guys, really. Yeah, for me, it was the home run chase. It was McGuire and Sosa, and that doesn't happen without steroids. And I think that's why a lot of young people ended up clinging to baseball. Because there was this crazy amount of power that happened in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And I I think it helped the caliber of the game. And, I mean, I think baseball right now is actually doing pretty well. It's a pretty decent product. But at the same time, first of all, I'm not so blind to the fact that people are still figuring out ways to get around the performance-enhancing drug policy, but also it isn't the same as it was in 2000 when all these home runs were flying out of the park and you had guys like McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds chasing records. It just isn't. And, like, I can honestly say that I think that the product of basketball is better now than it was in the early 2000s, and I can't say that at all for baseball. Football definitely isn't, but yeah. baseball, I can't say that at all for either. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I still watch baseball, I still enjoy baseball, but like I just said, I grew up very much liking pitching, and I think someone like me, it was it was harder to lose. It's not like I, like I love Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz, too, like I love home runs, but um, that's also why I'll always, like people have, have started to make this like Clayton Kershaw's better than Pedro, those people get the fuck out of my face, like. A, West, like, good for fucking you. B, he's not facing <laughs> juiced-up monsters nine batters deep and holding them to 170 RA for an entire season. 
So Clayton Kershaw, great pitcher, good for him. Nowhere near Pedro Martinez, uh, who I think is one of the most impressive athletes of all time, simply for the fact that he was like 145 pounds uh, dripping wet, clearly wasn't on steroids, and <laughs> was striking guys out left and right. I honestly and, think that with what we're seeing now with Lin- how Lincecum's declined, it makes Pedro even more impressive because he had such a l- more staying power than Lincecum did. Yeah, I'm, uh, I saw a lot of people, uh, like, Lincecum had such, like, I think it was like a five-year peak. And, I mean, I just saw him pitch, like, last week against the Red Sox, and it was, like, that, that guy's dead. He, he's not the same person. I feel bad because he was great back in the day. Like, he was a really fun pitcher to watch. But, yeah, he's just clearly not the same. It's kind of sad. I think. He, he used to be a big weed guy, so I don't know. Maybe he just stopped smoking, and that uh, attributed to his to his decline. But something he needs to fix something. I definitely agree with that. So moving on to the next topic, you work for Barstool, and this is an interesting subject because I I, I think that a lot of times, like certain sites have certain reputations, and I know some people have a certain thought of Barstool that y- you personally disagree with. And I have to say, like, I I think some of the writers of Barstool are awesome. Like, I think you're awesome. Now they have Chaps, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world, and has also been on this podcast before. So I think that definitely, like, I, I, I love the hires they've made recently. Um, so, yeah, what do you think about the entire conversation surrounding Barstool and what's perceived to be a good website? Yeah, I think the whole thing's incredibly hypocritical. Um, I don't know a single sports website I would say is morally just, and this was kind of the point I was making with the Hall of Fame writers, too. Like, I like SB Nation, and I hate to single them out because I think they do some solid work and, and we have allies on them. They wrote 50,000 words uh, defending a rapist. Is that how many it was? Yep. Like, not, like, not, not that many, like, but a lot. Yeah, it was it was a long piece. Like it was like maybe it was like twelve thousand or something like that. It, it took like a while to read, and that was like one day's worth of, of controversy. And then the next day, no one had a problem with it. Like if we did that, we would probably still be in court right now. Like Gawker did that whole thing with with uh, Hulk Hogan. Like uh, that, it was very clownish. But I mean, we do stuff like that, and and we get killed. So I just don't understand why. Like, I, what it boils down to is, is our, our figurehead. El Perez is very hateable, and that's kind of what he thrives off of. It's what he built himself up to be. I know, I've known the guy personally for five years. He's not a bad person, like, at his core. He just knows how to get a reaction. He knows how to get page views, and that's what he's going to continue to do. That's someone I want on my team every single day of the week. Like, people like Big Cat, I think everyone on the planet wants to be Big Cat's best friend. And I think it's a, it's a very rare thing to have. And and, and PFT is, is one of the best satirists of, of, of his era. Uh, and, yeah, Chaps is a war hero. You can't say anything bad about him. Uh, I just don't – like, we, we put out so much content. Every site that puts out so much content, we might have one thing people vehemently disagree with a month, and it just – it gets – blown out of this proportion that I just don't understand in comparison. Like, 
Like, I always tell people who I meet who are like, oh, you work for Barstool? Like, why would you do that? And I'm like, if I told you right now I work for Apple or for Nike, would you get on your soapbox and tell me how much you hate child slavery? No, of course not. You'd say that's a great tech job. But I say I work for Barstool, people act like I just punched their mother in the face. Like, I don't understand. Like, we <laughs> we just talk kind of how people talk. And I think that's okay. And I think people take disagreement like I can never talk to you again. Like, oh, I disagree with the point you make. The best people I ever talk to are those that I disagree with because one of us can learn something if you're both having an actual conversation, not just I need to be right, you need to admit that I'm right. Like, yeah, people say stuff I disagree with all the time. I don't hold some personal vendetta against them, and I think we just get painted in some weird light, like, oh, we're misogynists, we're racist. Like, I don't think any of those things are true, and people really, really hate us. I just got unfollowed by people who followed me for years because they found out I worked for them. Like, I don't hide that I work for them. How did you just find out that I work for them? What kind of idiot are you? And why would you unfollow me if you've been favoriting my tweets and, and trying to grasp my attention all this time? Like, I just don't understand what goes on in people's minds. The best part is when they tell you that they're unfollowing. They leave a message like, I'm unfollowing you. Bye. And you're just like, you don't need to tell me that. Like, just unfollow me. I don't really care. To me, I think yeah. the biggest thing with Barstool, which, I mean, I've been reading it a little bit more because I tend to read sites for writers and not for the actual sites themselves. So, like, when Chaps is on Barstool and Chaps is a friend and you have guys like PFT Commenter, I mean, it'll make me go to your site a little bit more. I think the reason why Barstool has kind of a bad rep is the stoolies. And that, that's just my honest opinion. I think it's because, you know, the comments section is a little bit different at Barstool than on other sites. Uh, but at the same time, I think I personally rarely read comment sections on articles. And, I right. mean, you know, I think part of it also is... And this is a good question for you, and you don't have to get into too much detail if you don't want to, but with the stoolies, do you feel like that there is an impetus or a pressure to write content that they would agree with, or just content that gets them talking? I don't think I don't think there's either of those, uh, and I will defend the comment section, but I do think there's a very... Uh, a, a split between the comment section and those who read the site and support the site, who I would also call stoolies. The thing with stoolies is, like, the Ice Bucket Challenge was started by Peter Freights, who the first people he challenged were two of our writers. So without us, like, ALS might not get cured in a weird way. When the Orlando shooting happened, we put up a T-shirt immediately. All those proceeds go right to them. When the Boston bombing happens, we're the first people to donate. Like those, That doesn't happen without the stoolies. So while the people who log in and comment on every article, like we could write nothing and they would just sound off. Like When I post a vine of Donald Trump or something like that, I'll get killed by the comment section saying, oh, this is the new liberal Boston. Uh, the comment section is going to comment section no matter what. It is definitely a different comment section than anywhere on the planet. I'll give you that. But I think that's 1% of 1% of all the stoolies. Like, I don't think Greg Olson, who's a self-admitted massive stoolie, I don't think he's in there battling with the trolls in the comment section every day. And what the comment section used to be seven years ago was actually a place where you found pretty funny people. Like, I, I'm pretty sure Big Cat started off as a commenter. Uh, it used to be a very different place. It has definitely turned into this 
hellscape of <laughs> who could say the worst thing imaginable. Uh, I'm not gonna, but I do think the rest of the stoolies, the the 99.9 percent of them who actually put their money up and who have who have gotten us to this point just with their their, their clicks. And every time an event happens that we want to throw our support behind, they're right there with their money to to donate it in a way that they know will actually get to the victims uh, or the suffering. So I do think they end up doing more good, kind of like a site. But but again, it's it's those people who say that terrible shit every single day uh, that that kind of become the face of of our readers and. And that's, I think that's tougher to shake off than the stigma of just being a misogynist site uh, because they're so vocal and so um, constant. I think that you just explained it perfectly because that, that really is sort of like the difference between, you know, because I think in a lot of places, the comments sections, like you don't read the comments and you know not to read the comments. I think in Barstool, like, there's a perception, I'm not sure it's entirely correct, and by the way, if anyone's listening to this and they have thoughts about Barstool and whether they read it or not, I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. I'm sure Coley would, too, just to sort of see what the general perception is, because, I mean, I I know sometimes Barstool, like, peaks, but, I mean, pretty much I only check it out whenever someone who I know does something funny, so I... I'm sort of insulated from it. I'd love to hear other reactions to that. But, yeah, I mean, you see what, like, Gawker did and Deadspin did. Like, Deadspin used to have a really, really bad comment section and just a lot of trolls. And then they had the Kinja thing where they hit a lot of the bad comments and you have to get starred a certain number of times in order to be visible. And I'm not even sure that's the best way to deal with something like some of, like, the really bad comments on Barstool, but... I don't know, maybe some ideas that you could think about down the road. Um, and, of course, some of the articles are bad, too, but some of the articles anywhere are going to be bad. Like, I'm I'm looking at the Barcelona article about the guy who wrote that there's a red flag on Jalen Brown because he's a vegetarian. <laughs> and, I mean, like, like, I read that and I just think, oh, it's kind of stupid. And I remember that there are other sites that do stupid shit like that, too, but I don't know. Maybe maybe cutting some of those articles down might be a good idea. Although then that's like, you know, some of those articles are funny, so who knows? It's right. all back the and forth. Thing, the one thing I'll say about um, Prez, and the only other person I know who does this is Shane Smith, the, the president and CEO of Vice. He's created a place on the internet that's, that's sort of free. Like, you don't really get it anywhere else. Maybe in the YouTube comment section. Those, those are pretty terrible, too. But Prez gives you a space, whether you're a commenter or a writer, where you it's not, he's not trying to make you fuck up, because that's not what he wants, he, he has enough headaches in his day, but I don't know any other site where you have the freedom again, outside of Vice, because I think they have all the freedom in the world too I don't know anyone who has the kind of freedom that we do, like yeah, like I said I would never bash Jalen Brown like that I would bash other people who I would consider nerds, that would just be something stupid and a one-off joke, that some people would be like, oh, who's this idiot? And then other people would, would be able to see the humor in it and stuff like that. But we don't really ban commenters. We've, we've never really fired a writer for saying something controversial that the, like, the rest of the company doesn't agree with. So I, I'll, I'll always respect him. If he ever sells out on that, I'm going to yell at him right to his face. But 
part of that deal he just signed uh, over the winter with with Chernin. Um, so far, I haven't seen any any negative or adverse effects of that, and, and that freedom is still there for for all of our writers and for myself. I mean, I don't really report to anyone. Anytime I, I post something, it's, it's what I post. I haven't fucked up yet, so that's always good. I can knock on wood. Hopefully, I don't. I don't have a. Uh, uh, hit piece out by the cauldron anytime soon. Yeah, well, the cauldron has like like any time someone tries to play moral arbiter of journalism, it always bothers me too. And part of it also is like I kind of empathize with the fact that there should be a space where people get to say what they want, as long as it's not like totally outside the pale. Like I'm looking up the article right now where uh, you had the incident with the um, Emily Austin, the reporter who basically just said a lot of racist shit in an interview, which she shouldn't have said. Yeah. Like, like if, if you're going to interview on something, you know, I mean, on, on this podcast we talk about all kinds of shit, but, like, no one said anything racist before, thankfully. But I would expect, if you're a guest, like, if you're saying something, know that you're going to be held accountable. Like, it isn't Barstool's fault that you said something racist, you know? Right, and we got blamed for that, but... I mean, that, that comes with being Barstool. Like, we get blamed for someone who doesn't work for us coming on and, and putting on her clan hood. Um, Polly Pabst of the Dan Patrick Show, I think, summed it up perfectly. When someone from the outside comes on Barstool, they want to be seen as one of the guys, seen as one of us to be accepted by our rabid fan base. So they try and bring it to a level they wouldn't anywhere else. And with her, she took it the complete wrong way entirely. And uh, that was that was one of the bigger uh, missteps I've seen from a person who put in years upon years of work just to get where she was in this business, and I, I don't know how she's going to come back from that one. That was tough to watch live in real time. I I was live and I texted I texted our sales guy. I was like, "Well, she's available for hire if we want to." He was like, "No, nah, she's got a job." I was like, "Not for much longer. She doesn't." And sure enough, <laughs> like the next day. Yeah, I think generally the gist for me, and I, again, I'd love to hear thoughts from people listening. Um, I, I think the writers at Barstool overall do a really good job, and I think, you know, a couple of bad commenters shouldn't necessarily spoil the site for anyone, so hopefully Barstool continues doing good work. And um, I know, didn't you guys, like, break a story recently? I think it was with the Eagles. Maybe it was a little while ago. Um, I mean, we break the occasional story. It's very... Very, like that's we're more the the uh, entertainment game where mm-hmm. stories already happen and then we we put a spin on them. But every once in a while we'll break a story and and we we do a, a decent job of protecting people. Like we'll get stuff sent to us first, whether it's some athlete doing cocaine or some reporters' nudes get sent to us, and we're like, look, we're not going to ruin this person's career. Whereas a site like Deadspin's like, yeah, here's five like fifty thousand dollars. We want that immediately. So I mean I, that that stuff we'll never get credit for because people don't know what even happens. But I mean uh, we we do a good job protecting people who are out there in the world trying to ruin their own careers. Yeah, no. The story I was thinking of was that the Doug Peterson cheating on his wife story was that that came out in April about how that was why he left Kansas City. Which if if it's true, and I don't know if it's a, I mean it wouldn't have been corroborated. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good scoop, if that is true. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's definitely more up our alley for a scoop, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, 
I don't know. I scooped the hell out of TMZ on, on like, when Kanye and Kim were posting all those Taylor Swift videos. I don't know how. I got those up on the internet before anyone. And that when Gilbert Arenas broke into Nick Young's house and was just an asshole for a day, I got that video up first, too. I don't know. Like, I, I found out recently that I'm going up against, like, because I do the social media stuff, and I found out I'm going up against, like, other, like, Bleacher Report has, like, 40 people who do my job. And it's just, like, me over at Barstool, like, just me versus them. And it's like, oh, all right, I didn't realize it was that kind of a competition. But sure, why not? If I'm going to keep scooping you left and right, I'm, I'm all for it. Gilbert Arenas does numbers whenever you post any of his Instagrams. I once screenshotted an a Instagram of his, and I posted it. It was when he talked about the WNBA. I think it got, like, oh, yeah. it was one of my best tweets ever. I think, I think it was one of my top ten tweets we're going to shift over to the stuff in a minute, but I, I kind of want to touch on one more thing before we leave. I know you wanted to talk about, uh, you wanted to talk about how African-American victims get treated by the editors of major publications. I'd love for you to speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was just a girl uh, who bit off in a cop's ear yesterday. I think it was at Salem State. And she was white, and they used just, like, a Facebook profile picture of her. If, if that, if she was black, not only would it have, it would have been her uh, mug shot, like it should have been for this girl, but they would have dug up, like, she skipped class once, uh, just literally anything to paint her in a negative light. Um, but because this girl was white, uh, uh, she was just a mistake. She was probably just drinking. And that's... Like, that's the kind of stuff in journalism that really bothers me. Like, all this other stuff, like when the cauldron tries to act superior even though no one knows who they are and, and we stomp them out. Like, that stuff's just more entertaining to me. But we're talking about people's lives and we're talking about systematic racism that's being perpetuated by these newspapers that are owned by Republicans or Democratic Like, they, all these newspapers and all these major sites, ABC, NBC, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, New York Post, all the Boston Globe, Boston Herald, all these places have, not only do they have their own political slant, but they they still have influence and power, even if the newspaper industry is dying. Those are still names people recognize. when They put up a tweet with a headline, and that stuff can still make waves. And so the fact that these people are taking and using that power to continue to perpetuate these this systematic racism over and over again, it, it's beyond troubling. It, it, I don't I don't know how these, like, this is why I dropped out of journalism school, because of stuff like this. Like, I, they teach you all these morals and integrity and all this stuff that's quote-unquote important, and then you just don't see it happen in, in the real world, and it's sickening. I don't understand why, like, uh, the, the the dude who, I, I'm, I'm upset I can't remember his name. There have been way too many friggin' hashtags. That's also a separate issue. The, the dude who was selling CDs down in uh, Louisiana, Alton I Sterling. want to say. Yeah, Alton Sterling. And they're talking about stuff that he had done that had nothing to do like, with video of this guy just getting shot. Like, uh, that's the most, that, of all the disturbing videos I've seen the past two years on Twitter, that one was the most disturbing to me. I'm not, definitely not going to debate if someone saw something more disturbing. I'm sure you have. We see a video of a, a clear execution of murder, something that should make every single person enraged. And all these these news organizations are like, "Well, time to go dig up what terrible thing he's done in the past, and we're going to make that the story." Like this man was murdered, cold. Like we see it, we, it's murder. There's nothing he could have possibly done that 
that should, could justify that. We saw the entire, we have the whole story. And he was murdered. And, and people are talking about all these other things he, he had done prior to that. No one cares about that. No one should care about that. That's not, it has nothing to do with the story. It's not only a straw, it's, it's the worst kind of straw man that I've seen. And it's something that, without that changing, people who aren't on Twitter, who, because Twitter is so small, we, I get sucked into it sometimes where I forget it's a very small portion of, of uh, the population. I saw yesterday some stat, the average person spends three minutes a day on Twitter. Like that's, if you're not on Twitter for three minutes a day, you're not on Twitter. You have no idea what's going on. You can't possibly absorb anything in three minutes. So if, if mainstream media is going to continue to slant stories and murderers' favors, I won't even call them cops, they're murderers. If they're going to keep slanting it in their favor, like, it's just going to keep perpetuating, and it's so, so troubling. I'm sick of it. No, that's that's true. I did not know that you went to journalism school. That's interesting. That was something that I... I, I was sort of thinking about it for a while, and I think now I'm, I'm sort of making my way without the J degree because I... I a, I like, I like not having to go to school, and B, I'm not sure it's totally necessary nowadays. But no, that's I, fascinating. I learned, like, I, the things I learned at college came outside of the classroom. Yeah, like, it was, it was a waste of time, uh, and that's why I didn't finish because it wasn't advancing my mind anywhere. Well, I wasn't learning anything I didn't already know. Like, I really wish my high school advisor was like, hey, yeah, go to that school. Take literally any other major, because that would have helped me tremendously. No, that's – I totally agree. And I – in terms of the, the police stuff, like, one thing that's really jumped out to me are the pictures people use for the murder victims. As you said, like, they use, like, her Facebook picture for the girl who bit off a cop's ear at Salem State, and then you see an African-American victim, that their picture might be, like – them looking a little bit more, for lack of a better word, like a little bit less doctored. It's not a Facebook picture. It's a picture to paint them in the worst possible light possible. And you definitely see that, and I, it does piss me off a lot. It really, really upsets me. So I'm going to move off to stuff, and we're talking about something that's only slightly less depressing. BoJack Horseman. So, we originally spent a lot of time talking about cartoons on an episode that never aired, and one of the cartoons we talked a lot about was BoJack Horseman. So, have you watched season three yet? And if so, what did you think about season three? And the show in general. I did. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, as we said on the last episode, um, I've been in on BoJack since before it first aired. Uh, I'm a big Paul F. Tompkins guy, I'm a big... Um, Patton Oswalt guy, um, they, what they do, what they've done with this show from the first episode all the way through season three, I, I when I first heard of the show, I didn't think it was going to go in this direction, but the way they, I have seen season three, um, I do need to rewatch the last, like, few episodes, um, uh, because I was a little too depressed to completely pay attention, but how they've, how they've taken a show about animals and people living together and made it a mirror of society while not glorifying a lifestyle we constantly uh, have shoved down our throats that's so over glorified and how they don't i heard someone say it recently i can't remember who it was but how they how they don't wrap every how they don't solve all of life's problems in 30 minutes how they instead 
introduce all those same problems other shows do, and then there isn't closure. There isn't some great life lesson learned. There aren't people making these ridiculous 180 changes when they're 35 years old and they've lived the same way for 35 years and then some half-hour endeavor all of a sudden makes them this great person. The, the, way they've, the way they've done this show and, and how they've gotten so many people to watch a uh, pretty depressing mirror for... You don't even have to be a celebrity to relate it. It's more on a level, level where, like, yeah, we're all... We all have our problems, and some of these problems aren't going to be fixed overnight or over 30, 30 episodes. Uh, they, some of these problems really suck, and you really got to stare them in the face and, and, and try and be as comfortable with, with yourself and with your decisions as possible and, and realize you can't go back and, and, and change history. I think of that uh, Herb Kazaz episode where Bojack tries to, from I think it was season one, where he tries to go back and, and apologize to his friend and get close to your eyes of can. He's like, I'm not going to give you that. You made a huge mistake 20 years ago that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. And it's true. There's a lot of stuff people do that you're not going to be able to fix. And, and you're going to have to find a way to live with that kind of stuff. And, and on a separate note, how do you, how do you feel about that underwater episode? I thought it was amazing. I, and I think that that episode, first of all, like, have you seen Lost in Translation? Uh, yeah. The entire episode reminded me of that, and, I mean, and I don't want to spoil too much, um, but this is something that I think you see in, in season one as well, and I, I recommend that people watch the entire show if you haven't yet, and a lot of people have, They're, they know what's going on, but if you have Netflix, you gotta watch all of BoJack. The cast is awesome, the show's really good. I think Bojack is happiest when he has someone who is depending on him. And I think that in the next couple of seasons, I think that's his biggest regret, that he didn't find that one person. And I think that he still has a chance to find that person, but that person is going to have to live with him through all of his faults. Like, one of the best lines in season two is that... When you look at someone with rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. Which is a really, really good line. And I think that that's sort of like what we're all looking for and what Bojack is looking for. He needs someone who can look past the bad stuff. But at the same time, he has to admit to himself that he's a flawed person. And I, I think he may have gotten closer to that this season. Uh, I, there's a lot that happens, and then I recommend after you watch through all the seasons, watch them again, because there is so much stuff in season one that when you watch it after knowing what happens in season three, it's kind of mind-blowing, um, and it really does change the way that you look at the entire season, but, the entire show in general, really. But yeah, I mean, I thought the Underwater episode was one of the best episodes I had seen, and it seems like everyone liked it. I I haven't found too many people who who thought it was bad. Yeah, I've, I've only seen one person who thought it was, uh, it, it tried too hard. Obviously, I disagree with them. I thought it was great. Um, one, one line, uh, it, you, you talked about the depending stuff, and it's true, whether it was... Uh, Diane, uh, uh, Todd a lot, um, his, his old dear friend, like the literal dear, I can't remember her name, um, but he even tries to go back and, 
keeps he, he keeps looking for closure with seemingly everyone. Princess Caroline, he's trying to get closure with, uh, and, and I think it they 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 put it out there the best with Todd because we've kind of seen their whole relationship. And I think that's kind of the point is to show how Bojack will treat people and much he needs that person. So I think that's kind of why Todd's always been there. And Todd had a line that stuck out to me in this season where he just kind of read Bojack all of his flaws at once. And at the very end of it, he said, you are all the things wrong with you. Like it's not everyone else. It's not society's problem. It's not anyone's fault. It's not your parents' fault. It's your fault. You have to come to that realization that, yeah, other stuff definitely sucks. Other things don't always help. But you're the one who has to live with the decisions that you make. And you you can't always find someone else to blame for that. Um, so I think I think it's some of the best writing uh, you'll find on television uh, or Netflix, whatever you want to call it, uh, for any show, any genre. Just because it's put in the context of a cartoon doesn't lessen that at all, uh, especially one that's as heavy as this show that can be dealt with on a, on a personal level for anyone who's ever felt an emotion one way or the other. Yeah, I identify so much with Diane, too. Um, and I thought Allison Brie did a really good job this season. Diane's episodes are really, really good. And I love the setup for next season. Uh, it was pretty heavily telegraphed in the final episode, but it's going to be fun. And I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that plays out with her. But, yeah, I mean, there's just some... It's a heavy show, and I, I really thought... I really think that um, the season sort of ends the opposite of the first two, you know? Even though Bojack complains a lot, and he has a lot of issues, season one and season two tend to end pretty positively. Season three, uh, you'll just have to watch, but it's a different vibe. It is definitely a, a very different vibe than the first two seasons of the show, so people definitely need to watch, and... You know, watch that, and then Rick and Morty's coming up soon after. It's just going to keep rolling. It's going to keep rolling with the good shows. Did you watch, um, like, any of the Rick and Morty stuff from Comic-Con? I did not, but I'll have to. Alright. Oh, wait, didn't they, like, read... Didn't they, like, do a reading of the dude in court? I saw that. Yep. That was pretty good. Like, granted, they didn't have to write that, but the fact that they, like, because that story went viral, we blogged about it, and it was, it was the fact that that happened, but to see it re-read, like, like, in Rick and Morty's voices was, like, I was so happy they did that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that makes me, like, continue to trust that show, like, these guys just understand what kind of lane they're in, and, and the comedy they're gonna keep Channing out and the fact that they read that and they were like we have to poorly animate this and just get that out there for Comic Con was I, I watch it like once every two days it's it's so it's so funny yeah for those who uh, don't know what it is there was a court case where I don't remember the exact uh, details of the case but basically the defendant says he wants to get a new lawyer because this lawyer said he wouldn't defend him unless he like suck like sucked him off or something or give him a blowjob. <laughs> And they basically Rick and Morty animated it, and Morty plays the judge, and Rick plays the defendant, because there was a recording that went viral of the defendant and the judge having this exchange and eventually getting held in contempt. And they did it in Rick and Morty's voice, and they animated it, and it's really funny. I'm gonna, I'll link it in the 
in the podcast because it's it's really really funny. But I'm looking forward yeah. to this season for sure. It's going to be really good. Yeah, I can't wait to see what they do. Like they talk so much about having infinite possibilities and and how they like they're just absolute geniuses and psychopaths and and I hope that shows on for a very long time. Yeah, uh, and they ended season two on a pretty good cliffhanger. So, uh, yeah, we'll see yeah, what happens there. Talk about, <laughs> talk about heavy! Like they yeah. they came out of the clouds with that. That was incredibly heavy. And this isn't a cartoon, but it has me thinking because I'm watching it now. Anyone who likes Orange Is the New Black or likes the concept, do yourself a favor and go watch Wentworth. That's like if Orange Is the New Black was actually made for adults. That show. Um, I, uh, I think it's in New Zealand or Australia. It's on Netflix. The fourth season just came out. That is uh, the best prison show I've ever seen uh, by far. I mean, I'm going to have to check it. I, I don't even watch that much Orange of the New Black, but I will check Wentworth. Um, yeah, no, it, it's, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's like actually what a prison would be like as opposed to Orange is the New Black where some rich white girl just comes in and becomes cool. Like that would never happen in a billion years. Cool. That will be checked out. So we're about done. We're at about an hour. Um, I, I I did not get to tell the story of the concert I went to last night, which honestly, it isn't that long of a story. I just, I got to see Drake last night and he brought out Future. Well, Future was supposed to be there. But then they brought out um, T.I., who was incredible, Dipset, who was who were incredible, and... Um, um, and J. Cole, who I almost forgot about because he was that forgettable. What Do you have a J. Cole take? Yeah. Uh, uh, I have J. Cole and Drake takes. Uh, well, I have takes about all those people, but uh, J. Cole's just not good. Like, he's not good at, like, I, I get why people like him, but to, like, like the oh he makes me go to sleep jokes are overrated but he truly makes me go to sleep like it's I've 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 been at three concerts where he performed or, or festivals and concerts where he's performed and I've seen him forget his own words and I've he just has no energy and uh, it, it, he's just not good I don't I don't like him at all yeah I mean I forgot who he was for a second and he was the big guest like he was the final guest they brought out. I was gonna say, what did you think of Drake's live performance? Because I've seen him twice now and was underwhelmed. Both like just him, he didn't bring out guests either time, and I was pretty underwhelmed with for a guy who had so many hits. Like I saw Future earlier this year, and I'd been told he was a bad live performer. I'm never listening to that person's take again because Future was absolutely electric when I saw him earlier this year. Uh, he just knows how to get a crowd going. He plays hit after hit after hit. Drake to me, it's just so drawn out. Granted, he didn't bring out guests. If he brought, out, if Drake brought out Dipstead at every one of his shows, I would go see every single Drake show. I would, I'd be, I'd be like a Grateful Deadhead. I'd travel the country watching him if he always brought out Dipset. But he doesn't. He only did that because he's in a feud with Funkmaster Flex, and he was trying to win the city over. And he did a damn good job by bringing out <laughs> yeah one of the biggest groups since the Wu Tang. No, Dipset were they were really sick. Yeah, I thought that. I'm going to give you a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. I thought Drake performed really well. The crowd was really hyped. He did this really, he did some really cool stuff where he like went all over the crowd in like this aerial thing. It looked really cool and 
I thought overall he did a pretty good job. Uh, everyone's really engaged. There was one weird thing he did, though, and this is the thing with Drake that kind of is weird, because I think he has this chip on his shoulder that people don't think he's, like, tough. And so the entire show, like, five times he was like, you know, uh, this ain't an R&B show, this is a rap show. This ain't an R&B show. Put that piano down, we're not playing any more R&B, we're playing rap. We're going hard. And, and he just, he tries way too hard. Like... When Future came out, Future just like boom, 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 boom. And there is this opening act. Um, I think his name is Division. Have you heard of Division? Yeah, that's that's uh, Drake's R&B artist. He put out an album earlier this year, and he was on uh, Drake's album on the interlude that a lot of people really enjoyed. Yeah, he was pretty good. I was I was actually I, I had heard of his songs before, but I hadn't actually known who he was before. So it's one of those moments where one plus one equals two. Another math joke. His name is Division. Um, and, and and it just sort of came to me. And, and I thought he did a really good job. But, yeah, I mean, Drake, I think Drake did a good performance. I think everyone was really engaged. I just think he has this chip on his shoulder. It's like the same shit. Like, people forget that Drake was, like, Mr. Frontrunner three or four years ago. Remember when he went into Kentucky's locker room, then went into UConn's locker room after the Final Four yeah, in college basketball? Yeah, he, he, had Johnny Man, he had Johnny Manziel's jersey, and he, he does all that stuff. And uh, right, like right now, he finds himself like he was definitely hopping on that rap stuff at your show because of all like Funkmaster Flex was throwing shots at him the night before. So that's definitely where all that came from, and he was trying to prove himself in New York where. That's that's kind of like where rap began. Um, so he definitely, because when I saw him, it was pretty split, like half R&B. And that's, this was last year. I saw him twice at two different festivals. And it was pretty split evenly, half R&B, half, half rap. So I definitely see why he, especially someone like Dipset, it doesn't get more rap than Dipset. Like, and and T.I. Uh, has enough gun charges to always be considered rap. Uh, hmm. So I, I, was- I, I see why. If I had to rank the performers, T.I. was number one. T.I. destroyed. T.I.'s got hits for days. Um, I haven't seen him, but he's... When people talk about the best, like, commercial rappers of the 2000s, I don't hear his name brought up nearly as much as it deserves to be. I mean, T.I. is that dude. I've always liked him, and and he gives a a lot of Atlanta uh, up-and-coming shine. Not as much as Gucci does, but he, he still puts on for his city, and I... I've always liked T.I. I did see a couple of people wearing Johnny Manziel jerseys, though, which might not be the time anymore. I, do, I saw one guy who I was like, oh, is that Johnny? And then I realized, no, this guy is taller than Johnny. He's taller than 5'11". Um, so it wasn't Johnny. <laughs> also, I don't know. I, don't, I think Johnny, was he'd be out doing something else stupid. I don't think he'd be at a Drake concert, especially not with the crowd of people. He'd be hanging out with Drake in the back if he was even there. Anyway, it's been really I great. Think, I don't think he's. Well, no, go he's on. Famous enough right now to get. I don't think he's famous enough right now to get backstage at a Drake show. Like two years ago, yeah, but right now with everything that's gone on, I don't think. I don't think those phone calls are getting picked up anymore. Yeah, uh, he used to call him on his cell phone, but it's not happening anymore. <laughs> anyway, Coley, thank you for being on the show again. This was great. This episode did record, so it's going to go live, which is great. Um, so yeah, thanks for being on. I appreciate it, man. And the next time I'm in Atlanta, I'll be 
next few weeks, I'll actually be moving down to Brooklyn, so we're going to have to meet up sometime. Well, oh, we got to go to all the fucking Boston bars, too. Because they're around. I look forward to taking over the entire city. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be going to all the bars. We'll hit, we'll hit all of them. Yeah, the, the, the big one's Professor Tom's. Professor Tom's kind of sucks. So, if... if it, it does. I, I really don't like it. But we'll figure out some shit. We'll go somewhere else. It'll be good. Anyway, that's it for this Absolutely. edition of the Hammer Time Podcast. Just follow on Twitter. Send feedback. Download an iTunes. Like it. Tell your friends. We talk to different people all the time. We do a lot of shit. And hopefully you enjoy this episode. And until next time, we'll talk to you later.